I, I have not, in my ministry life, spent time. I've studied and read and all of that in Revelation, but never have taken the time to teach from it. And I found that I was, I was going through the first three chapters in the letters to the seven churches that it was very, it had a, it had a spiritual formation effect on me. That I was very deeply challenged, stirred by what I was studying. And, and I, to be, I don't know how this is, this is not to sound any other way than honest. We spend about 30 minutes or so together on a passage. I spend five and a half, six days on the passage. So I am fairly beat up <laughs> in a good way by the time I get here. Uh, and, but it was very, it was a really, really positive grind if I can use that word for me, to spend time in the text like that. And so I was praying through different uh, things, approaches in the summertime. As we approach summer, our schedule varies a little bit. We have some different things that go on and special events. I thought, Lord, what am I going to do? How should I proceed? Uh, and, I, and I just felt like go back, to, go back to Revelation. And in fact, the reason why, the chief reason why we're coming back to the book of Revelation is because of what is promised in the book. Because of what is promised. Would you say that out loud? Because of what is promised. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3 really is more than enough reason for us to finish this book together. And here's what Revelation 1, 3 says. Blessed. Enough said, right? Blessed is he who reads me and those who hear, that's you, the words of this prophecy and Heed the things, that's us, who read here and heed the things which are written in it. So number one, blessed are we if we read it, hear it, and heed it. And, every, and how many vote for being blessed? Okay, thank you. All, all in favor, the eyes have it. The other thing is this, there's the semicolon, blessed are, is he who reads here and heeds, for the time is near. Be, we... We are going to read this text together because of what is promised and because we need to remember and to live like the time is near. The church is never as fruitful and faithful and fervent as when she lives like the time is near. The church is never as, as uh, cold and fruitless and carnal and Irrelevant as when she does not. Revelation reminds us that you and I, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must live with a view of heaven. A view of heaven. Colossians, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole New Testament really affirms this, but Colossians tells us that we really should, we need to just... Keep our literally keep our eyes fixed on eternal realities in, in the heavenlies where Jesus is. We live with the view of heaven, but let me make sure that I try to say that as well as I can. To live with the view of heaven is not, not just in terms of a destination. Because what that tends to do is we start to just think about just looking for the first bus out of here. You know? When we live with, when we think of heaven as the destination and this 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 place that we're going to go to eventually, and that and that and that it's what's important, we forget that it's a present reality. Heaven is a right now reality, and when we live with the view of heaven as a right now reality, we understand what Jesus meant when he said, 
pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. The, the realities of heaven are supposed to influence us and inform us that those things are supposed to prevail in our life right now. Heaven is a present reality, but it is also a coming reality. Heaven is a present reality, but this is not all there is. There is more to come. There is more to this life. There is a life beyond this, a life that is richer, deeper, and longer than this one. But even that does not cause us to neglect or to forfeit this life, but to seize it and to steward this life for all that it is. Living for heaven doesn't mean we stop mowing the lawn. Living for heaven means you plant flowers and save money and do what's right in every moment of every day because each of those days will be paused and evaluated and weighed before Christ. So there's really no better way to live for us than with a view of heaven. And there's almost no better way for us to learn to live that way than by spending some, some time, some more time, this book. Are you ready? Let's go to the throne room today. I know many of you would say, rightly so, hey, Jack, we've already been there. I know. We've been there together, but let's go there in the book of Revelation in chapter 4. Before we open it up and read it, what we're going to, let me just, normally sometimes I, I read the whole passage and then come back and go through it. We'll read every verse, but we'll pause as we read because this is, it's going to influence the way that we try to interpret this book. The, the, the role of interpretation in the book of Revelation, how many of you know that there has been more than one way people have sought to interpret this book? Have, have you noticed, have you anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah. There's been more than one chart and or graph that has been made. <laughs> now, and, uh, and some people get kind of, you know, concerned about getting it just right. But here's one thing we know about eschatology. No one's ever been right so far. <laughs> Every, everybody's been wrong. Um, um, <laughs> um, so because, as Jack Kafer tells us, the purpose of eschatology is not for the calculation of the curious, but to inspire hope in the ultimate victory of God. I didn't say it, Jack did, but probably said it better and probably said it more profound and taller. There are several approaches to interpreting this text. Among them are, you might hear phrases like dispensational, futurist, historicist, preterist, and idealist. Each of them, the differences are not something to get entirely too worked up about. The differences basically are on the timetable of the, of the church. Where is the church of Jesus when certain things are happening and the timetable of the return of the Lord Jesus and when that happens and all of that. There are some differences, and some of those differences are significant, but they are not so significant that they change the fundamentals. Here's the fundamentals. Everybody with a head on their shoulders in those groups, there's one group that's Looney Tunes, but we don't need to talk about them. Uh, 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 Everybody with a decent head on their shoulders agree that, uh, that no matter how you interpret Revelation, 
they all agree that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that heaven is very real. And that God will act with final and ultimate triumph over all evil. How many are already encouraged? And everyone will stand before Jesus as our final judge. <laughs> I love when the amenometer dies. God will try more evil. Yeah, amen. <laughs> you guys got your six shooters out on, on victory over evil. Judgment, you're like, oh, I dropped my pen. You know what time it is. Where's the roast? Um, let me get the. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ as our final judge. Yeah, we should yay. The more yay you have, the better you'll live this life. The more enthusiastic, the more hopeful. I get to get to that at the end. But I'll tell you what, when we live with the view of heaven, it gives us, it gives us more hope, more courage, more confidence, less fear, less pride, less impatience. We, 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 care, we care better about the world around us, not more about it, but better about it. I'm not so concerned whether you like me or applaud me or click like on a post or applaud the shoes I'm wearing. I care more about you than what you think about me when I live with a view of eternity. Somebody said jazz hands over here. Yeah, I heard it. I heard it. Our approach in interpreting this book is going to be this. We're going to try to encounter these passages as raw and in real time as we can. We're going to just try. I'm going to try to be like a, like a tour guide, and we're going to just walk with John through his own adventures. Yes, in some Bible study, it's very productive and helpful to read a passage and then and, and then consider that passage by what is said three or four or even ten chapters later. That's fine. That's fun. But our approach in these weeks is going to be, let's just pretend like we're right with John. And we don't know what's happening ten chapters later. Let's try to just read it and react to it in the moment as best we can. Can we do that? I think, I think that follows, for me, that better follows the triple A uh, Dr. Dav. Uh, uh, in Bible interpretation plan, which is I try to stick with author, audience, agenda. Who's the author? What was he saying? What was he trying to say? What, who's the audience? What, were, what are they anticipating? What are they hearing? And what's the big idea? What's, what are we, what's being trying to be said here? Uh, and if it doesn't fit there, if we have to borrow from something else, then I, I hesitate to use it. All right. So the three questions we're going to ask today are these. What is seen? What is said? And what does it mean? Just say those three things out loud. It's in your bulletin notes. What is seen? What is? And what does it? All right. So let's start with the first two. Or what we're going we're gonna to talk about what we see and then what they say. In the throne room. Here, let's start off in verse 1. I'll try to watch my time and, uh, with my enthusiasm. I, someone very sweetly, very sweetly, first service told me I just went too fast. And they stopped me and they created a, a traffic jam in the parking lot on the way out because they were filling in their notes. And uh, it was hilarious. And I said, I was waving, sorry, because they weren't stopping. What was that again? And I thought, well, this will teach me to slow down a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then, uh, and then once again, Grandma Amy told me I look like her nephew. And I hear, and she likes to tell me about it. whoever this guy is that she tells me I look like must have been a handsome guy. 
Am I right? Anyway, sorry. All right. Verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Okay, the phrase after these things, or a phrase like it, is going to be consistent in the book of Revelation, and it's John's way, it seems to be John's way of telling the audience that there's a transition in his, if you will, ecstatic experience. He's somewhat in a spiritual trance, and he's seeming to come in and out of them, and it's more like a, he's not necessarily reading a book of, of, of a linear story. He's coming in and out of spiritual experiences and seeing different visions. So he came in, he had one encounter of the risen Christ, and then he says, write these things down, and those are the first three chapters, these letters to the churches. And then it's like there's a breath taken, and then he says, after these things, whew, chapter 4 takes us into another introduction like chapter 1 did, another introduction of the the season in front of us. The first season was John on the aisle with, a, vi with a, a vision of the risen Christ hearing a message to the seven churches. They're still the main audience, but now we're going to switch and he's going to, he's going to go somewhere else in the spirit. Okay? After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing. And there was a voice and it was like the voice he'd heard before that, that sounded like a trumpet. That voice is the same voice that we read about in, in chapter 1 and verse 10, where John says, in the, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me like the sound of a trumpet. And it said, it talks about what he said. He said, I turned around to look at the one speaking. He turned around and saw the one speaking, and what he saw was one who was standing among seven lampstands, hmm, okay, holding seven stars. This one that he saw speaking was one whose face shone like the brightness of the sun. This is one before whom John initially fell as dead. Who's talking? Looks, blah. Unable to physically sustain himself at his appearance. And then this, this is the one who described himself as the first and the last. The one who said he was the living one, the one who was alive forevermore and who has the keys of death and hell. In other words, this same one in chapter 1 is now the same one speaking in chapter 4. Jesus says to John, come up here. And he speaks to John. He says, I'm going to show you the things that must take place. Ooh, everybody say must take place. Ooh, that means that there are things that must take place. There are, there are events. There are occurrences. There are points along the line of history and the future that God has ordained and that God has decided, and those things are going to happen. You and I do have free will. You had every choice to wear, to, to change, to decide what, you know, what pair of pants you wore today and where you're going to go to lunch this afternoon, fine. You got a little wiggle room in there. Do what you want. But know this, there is one whose authority has laid out some things are going to happen. 
Jesus said these things must take place. There's no option. Living with a view of eternity. And the very fact that Jesus says that says it that way. Are you feeling it? Try to hear John. Try to hear the original audience. Things that must take place. It invites the audience to respond with a sense of hope and anticipation. And this is the intent of this text. To inspire, to invite, to invoke a life that is lived in anticipation from every follower of Jesus Christ. You, that you and I will not live a blase, laissez-faire, que-sera-sera type of life. It's the way it's been, is the way it's going to be. Second verse, same as the first. No, no, no. That is, not the, that is not the way we live when we have a view of heaven. There's a sense of hope, of anticipation that drives us, that moves us, that influences us. John says in verse 2, I promise I'll go faster than that. That was just the one verse, and there are 11. Uh, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. There was a throne, and one sitting on the throne. Verse 3, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. John is in the spirit. What is happening to him is is occasioned by and enabled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally brings him into this vision. And the first thing he sees is a throne and one on it. And he tries to describe it. But are you, if you look, what's fascinating is how he describes what he sees. He does not describe, and I saw a figure about nine foot tall and six feet wide and with brown hair and, 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 and certain color of eyes. He does not describe or perhaps cannot describe the physical appearance of the one on the throne. But all he is able to describe is the radiant splendor and beauty emanating from the one on the throne. And he uses the best thing at his disposal. He uses the colors of precious gems to describe the radiance of, the, of this person who's sitting on the throne. And then from him is this rainbow, this expression, this halo of, of, of emerald colored light. Wow. Then in verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. One throne, 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Okay, what is happening? Now remember, the best way that the only thing that we're, the only thing that we're bringing with us to try to interpret is what we think is or hope to be John's frame of reference, which is a certain degree of Old Testament literature and imagery and explanation and some of the uh, apocalyptic literature of the day. We're going to take with us things that we know that John knew and his audience may have as we're coming in. So there's 24 elders. First of all, they're clothed in white. That's a that's almost a passive. They were they weren't. You shouldn't not not that they dressed themselves in white, but they were clothed. You feel that? 
So, to, so when, when they be, to be clothed in white means that something had happened to them. They were, something was attributed, assigned, given to them that to dress them in garments of purity. And they wore golden crowns on their head. Now, I know you and I probably, and if you Google it, you get, don't, by the way, don't Google images of this because it looks like someone's been in a dark room with some, you know, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. But, uh, uh. But uh, it, you, I know the first thing that you might think of is like the big, big Davidic type of big crown like this. But it's the word, is, it's a Stephanos is the crown, which means it's like a, it's, a, it's a woven, it's a laurel wreath type of a crown given to a, a victor. So it's the crown of victory or someone who has overcome, someone who has been through something, someone who has been out, come, come out of something as a victor, but it's golden and gold is either royalty or, or, or a priesthood or, 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 or a royal priesthood. And there's 24 of them. And so what the best thing that there's almost a consensus here, the best, probably the best approach to understand what John is seeing is some sort of heavenly representation. 24. Wait a minute. Don't think 24 hours in a day. Don't be that think, wait a minute, the best that people probably have come up with is what, what, we're, what we're seeing here around the throne are expressions of the elect, of God's chosen people. Twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles that represent the church of Jesus that around the throne are, 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 are heavenly beings that represent you, me. And they're the nearest to the throne. The elect are near. Woo, someone say it out loud. The elect are near. John, John has a vision of a throne room and closest hanging out with a bullseye front row view of the throne are the are 24 elders as if they had been there a long time, as if God's plan of salvation did not come at the last minute, as if there was a lamb slain before the foundations of the world, as if God's plan of redemption wasn't the last minute idea. Oh, nuts, I've got to think of something. But no, they've been there for a while. The elect have been there for a while. The redeemed have been present around the throne for a while. And they have been clothed in white. And they are wearing golden crowns of victory. And they are now royal priesthood. John says, I, 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 this is what he sees. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This is always in the Bible expressions of God's glory and His might, His manifest presence. And in Revelation, thunder and lightning indicate that there's a, there's, it's the significance of something's about to happen. It, it, so stay tuned. You've got to come next week. <laughs> something's about to happen. John's about to see something change. Oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to contain ourselves in the next week. Already I get excited. Because, oh. You can read ahead, but come next week. And he says, there are seven lamps 
burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Once again, we see the seven lampstands. There isn't a vision of God without these lampstands. There's the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy, that this is the seven, it, meaning, it means a full expression, complete. So this is, the, this is the, the limitless, complete, full expression of the Spirit of God present right there. Okay? Then, then he says this in verse 6. And before the throne, or in front of the throne, there was something like... You've got to hear these phrases. So he's trying to give a description of what he's seeing, not what he's actually seeing. There was something like a sea of glass like crystal. This would have been something massive like the floor. This would have been what the thrones are on. And in front, this is the, if I can be so uh, bold as to say, this is the floor of heaven, the floor of the throne room is this sea of glass or crystal. It's the same word if an author was trying to use the word ice. Only ice doesn't fit, so it's, it's, it's crystal is a better word. It's not, we're not talking about winter. But we are talking about a clear, solid, tranquil floor. That's important because there's thunder and lightning, and we'll read in a moment what else is going on. All kinds of things are happening. The throne room is a place of, of color and light and noise, good noise, lots of people saying lots of things, and thunder and lightning. All this is happening, and yet at the, bo- at the bottom of, of it all is perfect tranquility. Heaven is an awesome place, a colorful place, a glorious place, but it, there are no troubled waters there. There are no troubled waters. And in the midst of all of the glorious chaos, there is perfect peace. Woo! Wow! And then in the center and around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Stay with John because right now some of you are checking out. Like, I was with you with the sea of glass, and now I'm now there's too many eyeballs. I'm out. Remember, he's trying to describe in, in his own language what he's understanding, trying to reach back in the in his frame of reference to Old Testament literature, what Ezekiel talked about, what Isaiah talked about. So here he is. He saw he sees four living creatures with eyes. Then verse seven. The first, this is really okay. The first creature was like a lion. Everybody say a lion. The second creature was like a calf. Now, I know you and I think, you know, like, but don't think calf. Think young ox. Don't think baby. Think not old, like put out to pasture ox, bull, but like young, strong, vibrant, full of all the stuff, ox. Okay. The third creature had a face like that of a man. Think handsome. No, no. No, man is the man is the man is the highest order of creation. He is the highest. He would have even understood as the as the highest of intellect and in, intuitiveness and wisdom and and you know craftiness. All of those things. Okay. Then the fourth creature was like that of a flying eagle. Like flying eagle. Okay? And each of the four living creatures 
each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. This is a, this one, two here, two, and there's like the cherubim that Isaiah sees and Ezekiel sees these things. All right, so what we have here, though, to try to boil this down, you have four creatures, everybody say four creatures, representing the most noble, the lion, the most strong, the ox, the most wise, man, no jokes, okay, and the most swift, the eagle of all creation. Before the throne of God are the vital forces of creation. The entire representatives of the entire living creation are before the throne. So actually, before the throne of God in heaven is, there is redemption and creation surrounding the throne. Creation and redemption are surrounding the throne. Creation and redemption are surrounding the throne. i got to say it one more time because it's going to get gooder in a minute. Creation and redemption are surrounding the throne. What are they doing? Well, don't tell ahead, right? They're, they're, they're covered, they're, they have wings that, John says, they're covered with eyes. And every good solid commentator says that what, what he wants us to understand is that, that they are observing, they are, they are exceedingly aware and observing all the time. And yet, because of the text, these things with eyes everywhere, able to see everywhere or whatever, completely alert, and yet they are entirely focused on one thing. Not the sea of glass, not the jasper colors, not the rainbow not the, all the stuff. What are all these magnificent? Not the 24 elders on 24 thrones. What is, everybody's looking at one thing. The one on the throne. That was a Hammond organ. Come on, everybody. And they shout, wave hanky. Everyone's looking at one thing. The one on the throne. Verse 8, and day and night, they, the living creatures, creation, do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Someone say, the Almighty. That means there's just one. The Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. These creatures represent all of creation whose whole purpose, whose whole unceasing existence is to give praise to the one on the throne. Wow. It says they do not cease. That is a strong Greek negative. They absolutely never stop saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They affirm God's absolute moral perfection, that he is separate, that he is above all. Then they say, he is, he is holy, he is the almighty, he, he, is, he has all power and all might, there is no lack. And then this, he who was and is and is to come, he is the eternal. Someone say the eternal. The one on the throne is holy, almighty, and eternal. And in fact, was and is and is to come is an, ex, is an extension of the divine name in the Pentateuch. In the Pentateuch, God's name, he is, he is Yahuwah, 
Yahweh to be the one who is I am. But it's the, the, the but if you if you stretch out I am into its implications, it means the one who was, and is, and is to come. He always was, he always am, and he always am gonna be. If you think that's weird, I talk like that. I get that from my mom. That's why she chuckled, because that sounded just like her. And when the living creatures, and when they did this, when they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Almighty, the one who was and is. Whenever they say that, when or whenever, say whenever, or as often as, on the occasion that they say it. And when do they say it? Oh, they don't stop. But when they say it, even though they don't stop. Revelation, it's chaos of the throne room, okay? When they say it, and they never stop, when they do that, when they give glory and honor and thanks, time out, glory, honor, thanks. Say that with me out loud. Glory, honor, thanks. Quick theology of worship. What is worship? Is it just singing? No. It is giving, ascribing glory, honor, and thanks to the one on the throne. Glory means praise, to celebrate, to give high opinion, to say, woohoo! It is the expression of brightness and opinion and happiness and, 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 to, and to use wonderful imagination, to throw wonderful things, to celebrate greatly. Honor literally means to ascribe worth. It's the same thing that happens when, someone, when you, you want to sell your house and someone comes and decides what it's worth. That's honor, to give honor to the house. But when you're doing it to the one on the throne, it's there is no limit. It's simply describing the limitless worth of the one who's up there. Worship means worship. And thanks doesn't mean just like, high five, throne guy. <laughs> right? Hey, way to go, throne guy. No, thanks is, the, is, the, is the, literally the expression of joyful appreciation. Joyful appreciation. Someone say that out loud. That's, you've got, that's got to influence your view of the throne room in heaven. Because I know it's easy for well, it's easy for me. Maybe not for you, but it's easy for me to see this room. It's dark. There's lights. There's LED lights. There's blue. Maybe because there's lights here. But there's lights, and then there's dry ice kind of floating up from the ground, right? And there's people in robes that you can't see their hands, and they're going, It's all very serious, and John's going, Okay, but what's actually happening is people, there is the dry ice, I guess, and the lights and the things, and there are people going, oh, and then there's a whole bunch of people going, whoa! They're just, they look as if they're giving, having a party. All of this is happening at the same time on the sea of tranquil glass. And then, but don't answer yet. It gets nuts more. Oh, holy, holy, and happy, happy, and joy, and joy. And then as, whenever these elders, the, the, the four creatures who are, look crazy with the wings, they do that. All, the 24 elders, the distinguished ones, and the white robes, and the crowns, they throw themselves on the ground. Want me to illustrate? Okay. So they throw, they throw themselves on the ground. They take their crowns. They throw it down before the one on the throne. You'd think doing that once a day would be a lot. But whenever, this is a vision now. Whenever they say, hold, and when did they say that? Whenever they, as soon as they, as soon as, as soon as the redeemed hear holy, 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 they go, ah, and they stand up, throw themselves down, throw the crowns down again. <laughs> and they, 
worship him. John says whenever that happens, they, they will worship him who lives forever and ever. We heard that somewhere. And will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. He's worthy. Someone say worthy. He's creator. He created everything. And he says, they exist by your will. Whew, that means he's sovereign. He's the boss. Nobody started off. They did not create themselves. They did not exist themselves. They exist by your will. That's a big Mufasa, friends. That means you can have whatever super fresh idea, soups fresh idea you have about your life, your morality, your opinions, and all of that, but none of it matters. It's soups fresh. You've got your own idea. But you exist because he wills it. You exist because he wills it. So that's why you and I will be accountable to him. You are not the owner of you. You are the steward of you. You exist because there's someone who has always existed that wills it. Furthermore, not to sound too scoldy, here's a positive note. Guess what? You exist because God wants you to. You are God's idea. You've got to get both ends. It's just like a sword. There's a truth that's like a sword. On one hand, you exist because he wills it. That means you're not the owner of you, you're the steward of you, that you, that you have an, a responsibility to the one whose idea you are. But on the other hand, you are not an accident. You are not some cosmic whoopsie. Through time, you know, billions of years of time and chance, and then, ta-da, you. No. You are the intentional, deliberate, intentional design of an omnipotent mind. You exist because God wills you. No, you're not. I don't know what that means, but you're not that couch, whatever that couch you said out loud. You're, <laughs> you are on purpose. All right. So even if you have erred, you have mistaked, you have failed, the very fact that you are not your own invention means that even if you have failed, there is a designer. And if there's a designer, there's a fixer, there's a healer, there's a restorer. There's one who knows exactly how to put you back together again. <laughs> this is good news. These songs are important. It's important that we hear what they're saying about the one on the throne. He is holy, almighty, eternal, worthy, creator, sovereign. Because it's going to help us understand what, why this is happening, why John is seeing this. But also, chapter 5, the song changes. It's a big deal. But you've got to get the, you've got to get the intensity of chapter 4 to get the, 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 get the, get the, whole, the shock and awe of chapter 5. Because the song changes. Hint, there's another person that's added. Right? But it's the same. Only one person, only one being can, be, can have these attributes. The one on the throne. Everybody say the one on the throne. 
And this is what, and so this is what the throne room looks like. That's what we see. That's what is said. But as we wrap this up, well, what does that mean? How should we heed, having heard these words, how can we heed them? Well, let me just give you a couple, three, a couple two, three things. As I was breaking down this passage, and I, and, I, and I want you to know, not that I want you to be impressed or whatever, but just, just so you know. I mean, I, I, I break down literally every word that I can in, in every, in every uh, uh, parse the verbs and everything. Like, what is this word? How is this being? Where else is it? And, I, and, and it is oftentimes I can, get, I can miss the forest for the trees. But I, as I'm breaking this thing down and I'm gleaning and I'm looking for, I'm sifting through all of the details of the magnificent imagery and all of the persons present and the words being used, I'm trying to find a central message. What is being said? What am I supposed to hear here? And then once again, that the simple lesson I learned, I, I get the answer by overhearing someone else. I happen to take a break and I scroll through and I, and I, and I see that Aaron Brownie has posted a, a simple sentence on social media. He knows what chapter we're in and he's been in it. And all he says is this, amidst all the beauty and splendor of heaven, God is the center of attention. That's it. That's the message of this chapter. The throne room is full of awe-inspiring beings, light, color, and wonders, and mystery. But it is the one who sits on the throne, who outshines, outradiates, and overwhelms it all. In the throne room, God himself is the object of unceasing praise. Therefore, since the throne room in heaven is characterized by unceasing joyful praise, thanksgiving, and worship, therefore the church is never closer to heaven than when she gives unceasing praise. When we are offering glory and honor and thanks to God together, we are touching heaven. We are participating with heaven. We are connecting in the present reality of eternity. It is most fitting and most powerful and most like heaven when we offer praise and worship and thanks to God together. This is, this is our identity, our purpose, and our destiny. Thirdly, I would say this. Come up here is not a save the date card. Come up here after a while. Come up here after you're dead. Come up here after whatever millennia. Come up here is an invitation to worship now. Come up here is what the, those, those words were read first. Remember author audience agenda. Who, who are the first people to read these words? People that were struggling being persecuted on the outside. On the outside, they were facing persecution and death and poverty and pain. They were being attacked. They were being neglected. They were being rejected. And what they hear from heaven is, come up here. 
They were people that were facing idolatry and immorality inside. Some of them were faithful, the first three chapters. Some of them were faithful. Some of them were faithless. But to all of them, the remedy to get their, to get their eyes right, to get their hearts right, to get their minds right, for them to be recalibrated, for them to come back in line with reality, Jesus says, come up here. It is an invitation for the church to worship now. And in worship, discover what's real. Discover who's real. Discover who God is. Discover who you are. Discover what your purpose is. Discover what, what meaning life has. Come up here now. So we join the song. So I come back in closing. We wrap this up. Why study this? Why should we cultivate having a view of heaven because it it realigns just like that church it realigns us with reality when i live with the view of heaven we live with far more hope we live with more faith there's nothing that will encourage your faith more than to remember there's a greater more powerful and eternal reality at work You are not limited to the resources or the timeline of this world. When I live with a view of heaven, you can live with a lot less fear. A lot less fear. You don't have to be afraid of anything. A lot less anxiety. A lot lot less pride. Because I'm not the one on the throne. There is someone there and it's not me. I can just simmer down a little bit. I live with the view of heaven. I can take myself just a little bit less seriously. I can live with more humility, more faithfulness, more patience, knowing that there is is a God who is at work. That that I don't have to get bogged down, drained, or distracted by the day-to-day. That living day to day matters because every day will be brought before him. And every day is being orchestrated and worked toward his ultimate end. Friends, and I would say this, living with the view of heaven should really cause us to evaluate our ethics. Reminds us once again that I am not my own, that there is one who is in charge, that I exist by his will and that means I live that my, my ethics are influenced by reverence and a desire to honor the holiness of God. I mean, I could go on and on about joy, anticipation, hope, confidence, peace. It really is a win, 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 win proposition to live with the view of heaven. But let me just add this last thought. I think that people who are living with a view of heaven should actually look a little bit different. I I think that people who are living with the view of heaven should, in a way, be glassy-eyed, glowing-faced people. You know, like when Moses in the Old Testament, he came down from from Mount Sinai, he came down and people looked at him, and his face was literally glowing. And they said, that boy has been looking at something we haven't been looking at. He looks like he's been looking at something higher and better than, our, than the stuff. 
His face looks like he's been looking somewhere more pure, more beautiful. There's, a, there's an air of hope and purity and affection and brilliance and joy on his face. I think we should look like that. And maybe, maybe, maybe just a pinch, bear with me, just a pinch, almost a little crazy. You know, just a, I don't want to, I'm not trying to make everybody a nut job, but just a pinch. Like that deer in the headlight, like there's real headlights. Somebody's coming. <laughs> okay, listen, just enough crazy to make life more fun. Just to make it more adventurous, more hope, more full of hope and joy. Less intimidated by all the stuff. Right? This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He said, but we all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Lord, help us to live with a view of heaven. Thank you that in the throne you and in heaven you are the object of unceasing praise. And Lord, that we are, no, we are never closer to heaven, no more, no, or, nor can we have more of heaven influencing our own lives than when we are realigning with that reality and giving ourselves to praise, unceasing praise. Lord, let us be people who live with that view and be totally transformed because of it. Can I ask you to stand together as we close this morning? I need to ask you one question, please, with your heads bowed across this room. Very succinctly, please bow your heads in prayer. I want to ask you this very direct question. It's too important. You've got to please hear me. Are you ready for that throne room? Jesus Christ is coming again. He'll either come or you will pass. One way or another, you'll stand before him. The only way that you can be ready is not by any of your own works or your own efforts but by simply saying, Lord Jesus, I accept what you did for me on the cross. You died for my sins. I ask you to become, you are my Savior. I accept you as such. I receive you as my Savior today. Friend, if you have not received Christ as your Savior, listen, if you're unsure, then you need to be sure. You say, well, I don't know. You would know. You know. You've got to know. Friend, if you're not sure, if you're not sure that you have confessed Christ, that, that's an open declaration. You have not received Christ as your Savior. I'm asking you to consider this. Do not leave today unprepared for heaven. If you would like, if you're, this, you're here this morning and you're not sure, but you would like to leave this place certain want to receive Christ as your Savior today, regardless of how you feel or what's going on or what's waiting for you afterwards, nothing's more important than the reality of heaven. If I can get you to think about heaven for a few more moments, you will not want to be unprepared for it. Is there anybody here this morning, you would lift up your hand right where you are and say, hey, Dav, this morning I need to receive Christ as my Savior. 
Put up your hand right where you are. Don't leave here unprepared for heaven. Dab, I need to receive Jesus. I need to be sure I'm saved. I don't want anybody to leave here unprepared for heaven. If I don't see your hands, I'm just going to leave that, that up to you today. I would say it's never too late as long as you've got breath, but I sure would hate to risk that. Now, for all of us in this room who have received Christ, let's just take one more minute and lift up our hearts and our eyes with a view toward heaven.